Another new venture is a, a sermon series we're starting tonight uh, called uh, Two Samuel. Uh, Two Samuel is a book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Um, and if you, if you know your Bible history, uh, it's sort of, I think it's on the timeline. Uh, Genesis is about sort of Adam and Abraham and the promises there. And then you've got Moses comes on the scene in, in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then you get into the promised land in Joshua. And then you've got uh, the book of Judges. And if you know the book of Judges... Uh, there's a terrible cycle that happens in Judges where the people sin and they call out for help and God raises a, a, a judge or a leader who's going to help them and to rescue them. But then they turn their back on God again and that same, same cycle happens. Uh, and let's see, the book of Judges uh, ends with this verse. Uh, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. And the reason I've got that verse up there is that's the, the last verse that we have before we enter the book of Samuel. And so you've got people who are doing what they want to do and they don't have a king. Except they do have a king. They've got God as their king. But that's not enough for them. They want a human king who will be like every other nation. And so in the original Bible, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, it's just one book. It's called Samuel. So we're kind of diving in halfway through a book and there's three main characters in the book of Samuel here they are Samuel himself in the first seven chapters and then you've got Saul Saul is the first king that God anoints uh, but Saul is a very sort of uh, worldly king it's all about him and his power and then in the middle of one Samuel God picks this, this shepherd boy called David and says you're going to be my king and you've got Saul who's in this rage because he's jealous and he doesn't like the idea of someone else being king and so he chases David all over the place, tries to kill him, etc. And that's where we pick up the story at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And we're going to really focus on David. And it's really in two halves. First half of the book, the good King David. And then the second half of the book, the bad King David. I want to ask you to do two things before you come to church each week. One is to read to read ahead unto 2 Samuel. It's Old Testament history or narrative. We'll be taking four or five chapters, so it'll be really helpful if you just read ahead. You've got the preaching schedule in front of you, so you can work out when we're doing it. Read, and as you read, pray. And when you walk to church, can I ask you to pray these two things? Pray, what is God going to teach me through King David? the man after God's own heart? Is it, God, is it David's faithfulness? Is it his trust? Is it his love? What is it that God's going to teach me about what it means to follow him as God through King David? But the second and most important prayer is to ask, what is God going to teach me about God? Because 2 Samuel is not about David, not about Saul, not about Samuel. 2 Samuel is about our God, our mighty, majestic powerful, faithful God. I'm going to ask you to pray, Lord, what are you going to teach me tonight about yourself? Your faithfulness, your character, your majesty, your power, your goodness. It would be great if each week we were praying for people who came longing to hear God speak through his word. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to hear the Bible read. Uh, Father, thanks for this book of Samuel. Thanks that you've recorded it for us. Uh, Lord, please 
Make us men and women who long to hear you speak through it. We thank you for the gift of music and for the musicians you provide us with and, and pray that the words of this song would be our words, that we would praise you and that we would uh, mean what we think and we ask that you'll be pleased with our voices tonight and we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Yes. The uh, second book of Samuel starts on page 214 in the Bibles. To Samuel, chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. And David said, Where have you come from? I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? Tell me. The men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood over him. And I killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the band on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Strike him down. So he struck him down, and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth has testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow that is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, 
and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned you with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Thanks, guys. Let's uh, keep the Bibles open there and I'll lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord, how good it is just to hear your word uh, read. Thank you for preserving this for us. Thank you for the people who translated it. Thank you, Father, for the freedom to read it publicly. Uh, Lord, we we need help. We need your spirit to illuminate it. We need your spirit to teach us. Uh, Father, at the end of a, of a busy weekend, Lord, give us ears and minds and hearts that are yearning and yearning to hear you speak. So I do pray, Lord, please, please speak. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. First, tonight, uh, we're going to get a glimpse into the heart of, of the man that God chose, uh, the man called King David, the man after God's own heart. And we're going to meet a man tonight who oozes passion. He oozes a passion for his God. Everything about him is focused on his God and his King, a God who he trusts and a God who he loves and a God who is faithful and a God who will not let him down. Have you ever met a, a person who is really passionate for God like that? The person who just oozes out a passion for God. I'm not talking about enthusiasm or just excitement. That can just be that, that frothy surface level. I'm talking about the person who has that, that deep-seated trust in their God. And that deep-seated desire to honour God. And that confidence that no matter what, what happens in life, that God is faithful. Yeah, the person who when they are faced with disappointments in life, they don't run straight to worldly pleasures or creature comforts. They turn to God. And they pray to God. And they rely on their God. I'm talking about the person who, when times are, are tough for the church, so when the church is ridiculed and mocked, and when society laughs at the name of Jesus and mocks the Bible as, as the spectrum in the Sydney Morning Herald did yesterday, I'm talking about the person who, who refuses to sit in the corner and say nothing because their God has been offended. Their Saviour has been maligned. And so they speak out because they love God that much. Do you know those people? Are you one of those people? You know God so intimately. You are so confident in His Word you know his character, you know his faithfulness and, and so even when his timing is different to your timing and, and his plans are different to your plans 
you wait and you trust and you love and you're confident that he is God and he will hold on to you. So are you passionate about your God? That's the man that we're going to meet tonight. Passionate for God's name, passionate for God's truth and passionate for God's people. Let's meet him. We're going to character just to give you an overview of where we've come from. So my name's David and a few years back God promised me that I would be king. King over Israel. I was just a shepherd boy but he picked me out and said you're going to be king. But Saul was king. And Saul hated me. Saul despised me. Saul was so jealous of me. There was that time when I was playing the harp. It's in 1 Samuel 19. And Saul came running in and he, he pinned me against the wall and he got his spear and he rammed his spear. He just missed me and I escaped and I ran and Saul sent 3,000 men after me. That's how much he hated me. I had lots of chances to, to kill Saul. I remember the time when, when Saul was in a cave and the Bible says he was relieving himself. And that's euphemism that. I could have killed him then. But I didn't. No, I wrote these words. I said, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or to lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed one of the Lord. I couldn't take the throne by my power in, in my time. I just waited and waited for God to keep his promise. And then there's a time when I was in Ziph and Saul sent 3,000 men to kill me again. And one night I walked into Saul's tent and Saul was fast asleep and there was his spear right by his head and I could have picked up that spear and I could have slaughtered him. But I didn't. No, how could I do that? I said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, I said, the Lord himself will strike Saul. Either his time will come and he will die, or he'll go to battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I could have taken the throne by power, but I didn't. I waited and I waited for God in his timing, according to his word, to do his work. And your life's been pretty tough for me recently. I've been on the run, living as an alien in, in Philistines, amongst the Philistines. I know that God's chosen me to be king, but I'm not going to take that throne by my force. I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting for God to keep his word. Anyway, last week I was in Ziglag, I've been there a couple of days, and this man came running towards me. And, you know, he was an Amalekite, I could tell. And, Obviously distressed because he'd torn his clothes and the, his hair was covered in soil and ash and that's a sign of mourning. And then he fell at my feet, which is really odd because I wasn't king yet, but Saul was. And I said, what happened? And he told me this story. Apparently been this bloody battle between the Philistine, our enemies, and us, the Israelites. And let's just say we got absolutely slaughtered. Quite literally. And then Gallipoli was nothing. We stood no chance. Just bodies strewn everywhere. And I thought, what about Saul? What about King Saul? 
and this Amalekite. He told me how Saul had been injured and how the, the Philistine chariots were coming faster and faster and closer and closer and they were going to severely torture him. And apparently Saul uttered these words. Then in verse 9, Saul said, Stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. It's funny, Saul has said those words to me before in the cave. But I couldn't do it because I couldn't kill the Lord's anointed. Uh, but this Amalekite apparently took his into his own hands to put Saul out of his misery, kind of euthanasia. And so verse 10, he stood over him and he killed him. And then this Amalekite took the crown, took the armband, and here they are, he gave them to me. Let me say, my friends, it's a dark, 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 dark day for Israel. Saul, the king, is dead. Jonathan, the heir apparent, is dead. Armies are dead. Do you know what? I reckon this Amalekite expected me to be pleased. He came running 80 miles to bring me this crown, this armband, and I think he thought I'd congratulate him. How could I do that? How could I rejoice and mourn when God's chosen king was dead? No, I'll tell you what I did. I, I mourned and I wept, verse 12, and I fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And then I turned to this bloke, this Amalekite, and I said those words, verse 14, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now that's the story. And it's an odd way to start a book, isn't it? You've got lots of questions like, why wasn't David pleased that Saul was dead when Saul had been chasing him for years and trying to kill him? Why was this Amalekite slaughtered and killed just for doing what Saul had told him to do? They're the kind of questions we've got. Before we get to the main points, let me just say a couple of things. Firstly, and importantly, we know the Amalekite is a liar. We know that he's not telling the truth because we know the full story. Because 2 Samuel 1 follows on from 1 Samuel 31. Just cast your eyes up the page. Right at the top of the page. 1 Samuel 31, middle of verse 3. Saul was wounded critically. Verse 4. Saul said to his armour bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armour bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and Saul fell on his own sword. And when the armour bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. And so Saul and his three sons, his armour bearer and all his men died together that same day. And we're left saying, did Saul kill himself or did the Amalekite kill Saul? Again, if you know your Bibles, the Amalekites are the baddies, they're the liars, they're the terrorists, they're the evil ones. There's a phrase that says, have you ever met an Amalekite who told the truth? And so here's this Amalekite and he's, he's, he's there waiting, watching for Saul to, dead and then he, to die and then he pants and he grabs the crown, he grabs the armband and he comes running to King David thinking that David will reward him. And that's a great irony, isn't it? He thought he'd get a reward and his reward was death. That's the irony, that he was punished for something that he said he did, even though he didn't do it. But that's God's justice, isn't it? 
he thought he could deceive David, but, but worse than that, this Amalekite thinks he can deceive God. And I reckon that's his big mistake. Now he thinks he can avoid the gaze of God. No one saw him, no one knew, he can just have this little white lie and have a great life. But he forgets that there's a God in heaven who sees everything and knows everything and will expose everything and will judge in his good time. He always does. It's the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Nothing is concealed from God's sight. It's true of Aniah and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Thinking they can lie to God. It's the words of David in Psalm 51. God, you delight in truth in the inmost being. It's not the main point tonight, but it's an important point. This Amalekite thinks that he can just deceive God. And he forgets that God sees and God knows everything. You see, friends, our God in heaven knows when we are lying. He knows when our hearts are all about self-promotion and self-seeking and selfish gain. He knows the little white lie that no one else knows about and that we think we can get away with. How do we just stop thinking that we can fool God? We're like little kids who, who think that we can't see God so God can't see us and it's pathetic. God knows God sees everything. That was the problem with the Amalekites. He thought he could deceive God. But he also misread David. He expected David to be like you and I would be. All about self, my power, my position, my agenda, my timer, timing. But remembering this is a man of God. This is a man who's passionate about the things of God and the name of God and the people of God. Here's a challenge for you tonight. Two signs of the man who's passionate about God or the woman who's passionate about God. Both begin with L. Lamenting. They lament for God's name and for God's people. This whole episode is about grief and, and good grief and right grief. You see, if I was David and I'd been chased for years and threatened for years, I don't think I'd be too sad that Saul was dead. Would you? Look at David's reaction down in verse 12. They mourned, wept, and fasted till evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they'd fallen by the sword. See, when God's people are crushed, our grief cannot wait. When God's army, when God's people are being persecuted and killed, nothing else should matter apart from the rest of us lamenting and mourning and when we see the name of the Lord Jesus dishonoured or ridiculed or mocked, we should grieve and we should mourn like this. That is David, mourning, wailing, grieving, lamenting. Who for? For Saul, for Jonathan, for the army of the Lord, for the house of Israel, for God's people and God's temple and God's reputation. You see, when, when God's name is dishonoured, we don't just sit back and say nothing and do nothing. We should be sad. And we should grieve and we should mourn. And that's why David laments. And he writes this lament down in verse 17 onwards. And it's recorded for us, according to verse 18, in the book of Jasher, or the book of the upright. And it's written down so that Israel can remember, they can remember the loss and they can remember the grief. And it's a song or it's a poem. Why do we write songs? 
Why do we write poems, not just prose? I reckon they're much easier to remember. You know, I remember the, the names, the words of songs more, uh, more than I remember the words of the Bible sometimes. Put words to a song, easier to remember. And they're much more expressive. And this Hebrew poem is rich. You can feel the grief, you can smell the emptiness and the darkness and you can feel the tears and the wailing because God's name and God's reputation and God's honour and God's king have all been attacked. Now I don't want to pull this into the 21st century and to turn it into sort of how to counsel, how to grieve, grief counselling 101. That's not what it's here for. But as we sit with David, surely one application is that it is right, right and healthy to lament and grieve when God's people are killed and when God's name is dishonoured. You know, when we lose someone that we love, grief is a right response. Lamenting is a right response. Grief is such a, a weird process. It's almost uh, 20 years since my father passed away. So I've almost lived as long without him as I did with him. And the loss has been healed. And the pain has been healed. But grief remains. And that's a right thing. And that's a healthy thing. Because I don't want to forget. I want to remember. And it hits you in odd times. Like in a supermarket where suddenly you just, you're bowled over with grief. And one thing that really annoys me is when people say things like, oh, she's still upset. It's two years since her husband died. Why is she still grieving? It's five years since her, her son died. Grief isn't like that. Grief continues. And David here is grieving and he's mourning. And so he writes this lament. Lament is just a, a formal expression of your grief. It's like a carefully structured, carefully chosen words to express how you're feeling. It's like the eulogy that you that you uh, have said at a funeral. There are lots of funerals, and they. When I go and visit the person when they've just lost a loved one, the words that come out of their mouth are, are garbled and they're just all over the place. And they have time to sit and to think and to write a eulogy expressing exactly how they want this person to be remembered. That's the lament. And just an aside, if you have lost a loved one, let me encourage you to, to write a lament. How you want this person to be remembered. Here's David's lament. Verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on the heights. How the mighty have fallen. O Israel, verse 19, O God's people, the one that you rescued, the one that you redeemed, Oh, the horrors that those people have been defeated and wiped out. Oh, the horrors that the mighty God looks like he's been defeated. That David can't stand the thought that, that God is being mocked and he weeps at the thought of those, those Philistine women trash-talking Israel and trash-talking God. And so verse 20, tell it not on Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. The, the whole of Philistia, Gath to Ashkelon, unless the daughters of the Philistines be glad, and unless the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. He says, can you imagine those, those wretched Philistine women, and they're dancing, and they're singing, and the press release says that, that Yahweh is weak, and Yahweh is useless, and Yahweh, your God, is a joke, and you don't need God. That thought, it fills me with such grief, says David. That is too painful for me to think about, that my God could be offended like that. 
And so he prays in verse 21. And he prays a prayer of judgment, of drought and of barrenness, because, because these people have mocked his God, and he can't stand that. And then he laments for Saul and for Jonathan in verse, 30, verse 23. A Saul and Jonathan in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. Verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. Now, I find that incredible. The man who tried to kill him, he's saying, mourn him, grieve him. But his real grief, that deep, personal, gut-wrenching, tear-inducing, heart-ripping out grief, is for Jonathan. Verse 26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were so very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. Friends, please don't read gay lovers here. He's not talking about sexuality. He's talking about fidelity. Jonathan was his best buddy, his best mate, the man who never let him down. Totally devoted to David. Jonathan was the heir. Jonathan should have become king, but... He said to David, no, no, you'll be king and I'll stand by you and I'll be your number two. That was Jonathan, selfless, transparent, full of goodness, that faithful friend. And when your faithful friend is taken, the right thing to do is to lament and to grieve and to call out to God. It's been said, the more that we love, the more that we grieve. I I think of a funeral I did for a couple who've been married for 60 years and just the grief on this man to be apart from his wife. The more you love, the more you grieve. That's David. Lamenting for God's people, lamenting for God's name. Now you're sitting here thinking, but we're so far from Gilboa. We don't hear of whole armies of God's people being wiped out. We don't hear of, of God's name being mocked and ridiculed like this, do we? Do we? Pick at your papers. You see Jesus being mocked and ridiculed. You see the church being dragged through the gutter. We heard a few weeks ago the voice of the martyrs of of Christian men in jail for their faith and, and their wives left to support them with nothing. And we sit here and it's almost like we're we're cold hearted. And we read a paper we and we hear of the name of Jesus being mocked. And we don't grieve like this and we don't care that his names are in dishonoured. Why? The more you love, the more you grieve. The more you love your God, the more you love your Lord Jesus. The more you know him, the more you trust him, the more you will grieve. When you see God's people throughout the world being slaughtered. And when you see God's name being dishonoured. And lamenting like this is a right response. That's the first L. Lamenting. The second L, and much more briefly, is loyalty. David is just loyal to God's promise. The thing that smacked me between the teeth of reading this is that David could have taken the crown by his own hand. He could have taken it by force, but he chose to wait on God. He could have initiated him becoming king by killing King Saul, but he chose to wait on God. He could have sought his own 
power, his own kingdom, his own glory. But he just took God at his word and said, You are God, you will keep your promise. It wasn't about David, it wasn't about David's timing, David's power, it was all about God. Even when those plans for David involved heartache and suffering. He trusted God and took him at his word. And that's why he reacts in verse 14 to the Amalekite, well, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This was the one that God had chosen. I didn't like him. He made my life a misery, but this was God's plan. Who were you to take, take life into your hands rather than trust in your God? You see, David is a man who's not driven by power. He's not just interested in his own personal gain. He's got this right proper, healthy respect for his God and for the Lord's anointed. See, it would have been tempting, it would have been easier, perhaps with a good argument for David, to have taken the kingdom, but he wouldn't do that. Why? Why didn't he do it? Because he knew God, God had spoken, and he just took God at his word. He, David knew that his God would honour his promise. His attitude is kind of, I'll let, be, I'll let God be my God. I know God's promise will come true. It will come true in God's perfect timing. Not my will, not my power, not my force. I'll just wait patiently for God to fulfil his word, for God to fulfil his promise, because I live by faith in a God who loves me and a God who never fails to keep his promises. And I reckon that's a fundamental lesson for you and I to learn. Because God does make lots of promises. And God will keep his promises. And my job and your job is not to take things into our hands but it doesn't happen in our timing. It's not to think that we know best. We're called to wait. And to be godly. And to pray. And to be faithful and to be loyal to God and his scriptures. God always keeps his promises. You know, he, he promised he'd rescue Israel from Egypt, and he did. It took a while. Their timing would have been different, but he kept his promise. He promised to send his son, the Messiah. Can you imagine waiting for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years? It would have been tempted to say, this is the one. I'll do it in my power and my time, but 